Good morning. My name is Ellie Jones. Please listen to 2 Chronicles 34. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked in the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father, and in the twelfth year he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram and the carved and metal images. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the ashram and the carved and the metal images, and he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali, in their ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the ashram and the images into powder and cut them down, all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had cleansed the land and the house, he, sh he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Messiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, good morning. So I finished reading a, a book this week, um, a book I thought was an autobiography. It was a, about a particular theologian, and uh, I, I know that's kind of nerdy to say, but it was interesting. Um, so it's an autobiography. I got to the end, and uh, he took a couple of pages to explain that, no, actually, this, this book wasn't an autobiography. It was a memoir. And I wasn't aware there was a difference, but um, he elucidated what this difference was. Uh, whereas an autobiography I'm given to understand would tend to relay the events of a person's life in chronological order, uh, a memoir picks and chooses stories, weaves them together uh, according to the certain themes that resurface over and over again in a person's life. So this particular book had been written more in that latter perspective of pulling out different themes from this guy's life and um, how he had developed and learned in the midst of those. Which made me wonder, if you wrote a memoir, if I wrote a memoir, what, what themes would come up in my life over and over again? There's, of course, potential negative ones, uh, anger, jealousy, uh, bitterness, rivalries. There's the potentially positive ones, uh, faithful service to a company, to a church, sacrificial love for a family. I think if I were to write a memoir, at least at this point in my life, one of the recurring themes of my adult life would be something like, the tacos are calling and I must go. Because I've been on this quest, you know, my whole adult life to find the best Tex-Mex food I can find anywhere. I know that's not legit tacos, like, but anyway, it's, that, that we could have a whole long conversation about that. that that's, that's what would come out of my memoir. What, what might come out of yours? After first service, somebody came and found me and said, that's a really scary question. You know, the Old Testament histories 
that we're going to be reading and learning from over in the course of this series we're calling Faith for Pagans. Uh, the Old Testament histories approach the lives of the kings more from this memoir perspective than from strict chronological biographical perspective. Uh, pulling out recurring themes over and over again that show up in the lives of one king after another, or even in one king's life, uh, bringing out certain themes that sort of weave through their life. These are the things that we need to learn from uh, as we read the Old Testament and the Old Testament histories. And by the time we get to the the parts of the Old Testament that we're going to look at in this particular series, one of the themes that comes through over and over again is, is how far the nation of Israel has fallen from true worship of God. They've combined the worship of Yahweh with the worship of other so-called gods in really an attempt to kind of cover all their bases when things go wrong in their lives. So where we are in the history of the nation of Israel, essentially they are pagans now. And have been for many generations. That's why we're calling this series Faith for Pagans. Because as we turn to, the, to 2 Chronicles 34 and we begin to read the story of King Josiah. We're looking at a king who finds faith in the midst of a pagan society and a pagan world. Now when I use that word pagan, I'm not referring simply to primitive animistic worship. Uh, but to the context of the world he's in where each nation has its own God and each nation's God is vying for control over the others. In this world where there are many competing gods or views of ultimate reality, many religious systems and quasi-religious systems, and not, none of them, not a single one of them is basically true for everyone. But they all compete. Each nation, sometimes each city has its own God And these various religions and centers of worship are sometimes violently bumping up against each other, exerting control over the ancient Near East. Which actually sounds kind of a lot like the world we live in today. All sorts of various religions and belief systems and worldviews, none of which is uh, assumed to be the true one, but all of which bump up against each other and vie for dominance. So if Josiah needed a faith for pagans, so do we. We might be pagans too. We'll find out as we go through this series. So this week we're starting our Faith for Pagan series by turning to the very beginning of the story of King Josiah. One of these kings whose story is told memoir style. And we're going to spend the next month and a half considering his life of faith in the midst of a pagan Israel. Questions. What can we learn from his life? What lessons can we derive for our lives today? What does the kingship of Josiah teach us about our king, Jesus? But before we can really begin and jump into the main bulk of his life, we're going we're gonna to have to focus on the beginning of his life, uh, the, the beginning of his story. We've got to dig into who this guy is, what makes him tick, what's going on in the world around him in order to understand him and his life and what makes it instructive for us. And like any one of us, his is a story that stretches back generations. If your family is like mine, you've collected the stories of generations past, grandparents and great-grandparents, and told those stories to your kids because, you know, where we come from in a large part determines who we are. We'll find that's true of Josiah as well. So we're going to spend some time looking backwards at the kings before Josiah so we can understand him a little bit. 
Now, before I talk about the personalities, though, we need to get um, our chronological bearings. If you're like me, you kind of jump into any point in the Old Testament, and you're like, I really don't know what's going on, but I think there's like a nation and maybe a temple. But there's, there's some important stuff for, under, for us to understand. Josiah is living in a period known as the divided monarchy. Now, those of you in junior high who have sat, you know, all three years through Mrs. Waltz's walk through the Bible, remember... High school, as I'm looking at you, the divided monarchy, right? Where the, the nation of Israel, which had been 12 tribes, was essentially split in half. And uh, the northern half was called Israel. They had their capital in Samaria. The, the southern half was called Judah. They had their capital in Jerusalem. And they, didn't, they weren't getting along as well. They more or less worked together, but they also kind of argued and fought a little bit. But at this, at this time period with the divided monarchy, there's other world powers that are coming into prominence that affect the story. Assyria to the north is fighting with Egypt to the south. And what two nations are right in between Assyria and Egypt? Class? Israel and Judah. They're stuck in the middle. So as Assyria and Egypt go head-to-head with each other, they're doing it in the land of Israel and Judah. And each one of them is exerting control over a different one and trying to exact tribute. And all this stuff is going on. This is the divided monarchy, this unsettled, if you can imagine, being a tiny little nation. It'd, it'd be like you know, living in Indiana, but having Chicago and, uh, and Louisville constantly at war with each other, you know, fighting in the midst of us. Uh, this is the world they're living in. When Hezekiah, who is Josiah's great-grandfather, takes the throne. King Hezekiah is known as one of the, the last great kings of Israel for two main reasons. Uh, the first main reason is that the very first month of the first year of his reign, he went on a, a program of cleansing Israel from false worship. Technically Judah, because it's the southern half. But, so he went on this uh, program of cleansing from false worship. He went and uh, cut down all of the, the, the Asherah poles in the high places and destroyed the altars to Baal. And, and he, he did... He did this, this whole program of religious purification. In his time, the, the temple had actually been closed. It had been not used for so long that he reopened the temple, brought the whole priestly class back together, and celebrated Passover, the greatest festival of the Jewish calendar. If any of that sounds familiar, like we just read about that, that's because Josiah is going to have to do the same thing again three generations later. But we'll get to that in subsequent weeks. Hezekiah is a great king because he reinstates the uh, worship of Yahweh in Judah. But the second reason he's known as a great king is because he also threw off the yoke of oppression from Assyria. Now, when Hezekiah came on the scene as throne, the northern kingdom of Israel had just recently been uh, basically destroyed and sent off into exile. So his buffer between him and Assyria was gone Assyria now controlled the land of Israel to the north and were right on Judah's borders. But still, Hezekiah said essentially to Assyria, like, no, we are not paying this tribute that you've been exacting from us. A hugely punitive amount of money they had to send every year. So we're not doing that anymore. And Assyria, for some reason or another, took their time, but eventually they showed up and said, yeah, that's not going to work. We still own you guys. And you may remember that story. It's the one where 185,000 troops are camped around Jerusalem. And in the night, the angel of the Lord comes through and wipes them out. And they have to go back to Assyria penniless and defeated. So Hezekiah is seen as one of these great kings, almost the very last great king until we come to Josiah himself. But even though Hezekiah is on the whole a a great king who followed God after the manner of King David, uh, his influence does not seem to have worn off 
on his son very well. Hezekiah spends 30 years on the throne before he's succeeded by his son Manasseh. Manasseh, King Josiah's grandfather, doesn't start out well. Immediately, he undoes all of the religious reforms that his father had done. He rebuilds all the false places of worship, re-erects the Asherah poles and the altars to Baal in the high places. But he goes one step farther, actually multiple steps farther. He carves himself various idols and brings them into the temple, the place where God said, my name will dwell here. Brings them into the temple and sets up altars to other gods within the temple itself. And then to cap that off, he takes a couple of his kids out to the valley of the son of Hinnom and he burns them alive in a sacrifice to a pagan god. So the Bible records that Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the people of Israel. Manasseh was not a good guy, if that's not clear. He was not a good king. And it's significant that Manasseh is evaluated as doing more evil than the nations that Israel drove out before them when they took the land. Uh, As you read through the history of the Old Testament and the prophets, uh, you'll notice over and over again that God punishes nations by bringing other nations in to subdue them or subject them. But the way he judges different nations is based on different criteria because he has a different relationship with different nations. Uh, When God judges the countries that don't worship him, uh, like kingdoms like Babylon, Assyria, the Canaanites, the Amorites, remember all those ites you can't really remember. Uh, when, he, when he judges them, it's based on what we would today refer to as, as human rights violations. He says, I'm judging you because you, uh, you dash babies against a stone, because you, uh, when you take over a land, you kill the pregnant mothers. Uh, I'm, I'm judging you because of your abuse of authority for deception and cruelty and treachery and wickedness. All this stuff that's sort of kind of in us that we know is wrong. He says, I'm judging you for that. But when God judges his chosen people, when he interacts with Israel and Judah, uh, he judges them based on their adherence to the law that he's given them because he has a relationship with them. He's revealed himself to them. So he judges them for turning away from him, uh, for neglecting the law, for taking advantage of the poor, things like that. So to say that Manasseh has caused Judah to do more evil then the pagan nations who were there before them is to say that Judah now deserves exactly what all those nations got, which is ruin and exile. So with all this evil that Manasseh is leading the nation of Judah to do, God tries to get his attention. He speaks through the prophets saying, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did, therefore, I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. It says, they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight. King Manasseh still doesn't listen. So God sends Assyria in again. They capture Manasseh with hooks, the Bible says, which does not sound like a comfortable way to be captured. Uh, And they bring him off to Babylon. And it's finally there in Babylon, uh, because of all this distress, that Manasseh humbles himself greatly before the God of his fathers, we're told. And God is moved by his prayer and brings him back to Jerusalem 
where then Manasseh begins to, he starts to remove the worship of false gods from the nation. So think about the stories that Josiah may have grown up hearing of his, his grandfather Hezekiah, the last great king, his uh, great-grandfather Hezekiah, his grandfather Manasseh, this essentially pagan king who found God near the end of his life. How do those stories affect Josiah? We don't know. But just as before with Manasseh, uh, just as earlier in their history, now Judah is subservient to Assyria, paying tribute to them. And Manasseh's uh, repentance is not enough to fully remove God's promise of exile, of coming judgment. It's still coming sometime in the future, which Josiah knows growing up in the palace. Well, Manasseh... He's on the throne for a while. When he dies, his son, Amon, uh, Josiah's father, takes the throne. And once again, history repeats itself. Uh, Amon is described as an evil king, just like his father Manasseh was uh, at the beginning. According to Scripture, he did not humble himself before the Lord, but this Amon incurred guilt more and more. And we don't know exactly what he did, but apparently what he did was not only just religious in nature, but also political in nature, because uh, some servants within his own palace conspired against him and assassinated him after just two years. So very quickly, he's removed from the scene. Those who uh, conspired against him and assassinated him, they're discovered and they are put to death by the people of the land, who then take uh, Amon's son, Manasseh's grandson, Hezekiah's great-grandson, Josiah, an eight-year-old boy, and they put him on the throne. And that brings us to 2 Chronicles 34. So let's take a look at the first couple of verses of this chapter. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Now these first two verses of Josiah's life, as we're introduced to him, they tell us a lot. Uh, memoir style, they bring up those themes again that are repeated in the evaluation of each king. In this case, it's positive for Josiah. Uh, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David, his father. You'll find those phrases over and over again for the good kings. The bad kings, it says something more like, and he did what was evil in the eyes of his Lord and did not walk in the ways of David, his father. So these verses, these first two verses, give us a clue to the kind of story we're going to read about Josiah. We know he's going to go on to be at least a little bit more successful than his dad was, because he's going to reign 31 years and his dad only lasted two. We know that he was young, as it says. I mean, can you imagine putting your eight-year-old in charge of a pet, like much less a whole kingdom? <laughs> when I was eight, I had a hamster that one day I discovered ate all of its babies and then died. And... I guess that's actually probably not all that different from being in charge of a kingdom, but uh, I have no idea how to take care of anything when I'm eight, but this guy is in charge of the whole kingdom. Which make us pause. How is he going to do this? But we find out he's going to be a good king, one more like uh, the prototypical King David than like his grandfather Manasseh or his father Amon. 
which frankly surprised me as I started studying for this, and it's like I'm reading about Josiah, but I felt like I needed to go back one generation to understand him a little more, and, but then I needed to go back another generation to understand him, and then go back another one. I thought, how in the world did Josiah turn out okay? Like with this family heritage, right? Like I know your family's messed up, but your family's not messed up and in power like theirs is. I mean, I don't know how he turned out all right, but he did. There was a lot, there was a lot of historical factors conspiring against him. There was this religious yo-yo-ism of Judah, like a, like a pendulum going back and forth. The nation is swinging from one extreme of worship to another. From, from year to year, it seems, or from king to king, they're going from everybody worshiping the false gods in the high places to everybody worshiping only Yahweh. And most commentators agree, at this point, there's been so much back and forth that the religious integrity of the nation has so deteriorated to the point that all it takes is a new king or a new problem or something, and we're going to go running after a different god. It's almost like some, some surmise that um, part of the reason that Israel really struggled in their worship of, of Yahweh alone it was because of their, their origin story. If you remember, Israel became a nation or sort of forged its national identity uh, in the desert as nomadic wanderers, as shepherds without a real permanent home. And then they moved into a fertile farmland with cities. And you've got to remember at this time, it's basically thought that a, the god of a particular nation or of a particular place is basically good at doing whatever it takes to live in that place. So, yeah, Yahweh can take care of us in the desert. Like, he can provide manna. He can take care of shepherds. But what does he know about sending rain and making crops grow? So there's this constant tendency to think, okay, God took care of us there. But, I mean, Baal and, and Asherah, like, they're the gods who took care of these people here. Maybe they should take care of us. Maybe we should, you know, pay them a little respect in order to cover our bases. Right? Make sure that if something goes bad, uh, we've, got, we've got backup. So this, this heritage of, of syncretism, of combining the worship of many different gods together into this, this uh, kind of amalgamated system, it's got a strong history in the nation of Israel over and over and over again. We read about this temptation, how difficult this is. And whenever things got difficult, as we read, people naturally turned towards the God they thought was most capable of solving that problem. If it doesn't rain, sacrifice to Baal. If the crops are bad, set up an Asherah pole. If you're being oppressed by an outside force, pray to Yahweh. There seemed to be sort of a, a fundamental inability to think of God, the one true God, as the one true God over all of the other so-called gods, but as just one God on the shelf who was good at what he was good at, but others were maybe better at other things. And I know when we talk about that or think about that, it kind of sounds like nonsense to us or like, seriously, guys, how could you not figure that out? on the one hand, or, you know, unenlightened pagan societies on the other. But I think we got to make sure we're not too quick to judge these guys for, for idolizing other gods. Uh, because we're pagans too. When, when we inordinately uh, spend a ton of time and energy on our children's futures, or, or flock by the millions to worship a sports team, or... Uh, sacrifice time and money we don't have in order to get something we're told will, will satisfy us, we're doing the same thing. We don't have little carved images to put up on a shelf, but we're covering our bases on the quest for happiness. 
trying to find it in whatever little God we think might give it to us. So we're all pagans now. We're all living in a world where different religious and quasi-religious options are vying for our allegiance, promising us ultimate happiness. We're, we're all pagans now, and if we are, then we need a faith like Josiah's. Which is why we're here. Now, it's not just this uh, syncretism that is the problem. It's one of the problems that's kind of conspiring against Josiah becoming a good godly king. But we also have the fact that he's young. Came to the throne at the age of eight. And we really don't know what, what influences were on him in his early years. Um, some suppose that because he turned out well, uh, maybe he had a, a godly mother. Uh, maybe he was under the tutelage of the priests and the elders. You know, something formed him and, and pushed him towards, uh, towards God. But again, we really don't know uh, what it was like. The biblical record is mostly si- silent on his childhood uh, up until he's 16, which is what verse 3 tells us. Uh, for in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of his father. It's kind of curious, just as an aside, that the ESV decided to describe him as yet a boy. Other translations say as a young man, because he was 16, uh, in charge of a kingdom, and already had two, maybe three kids at this point. So don't, you know, don't have the idea of your eight-year-old anymore, but think of your 16-year-old. This is the the Josiah that we meet, more of a young man. Um, A young man who's already taking charge and, and ruling and, and doing important things. This is the Josiah we meet in the first three verses of his story. A young man, 16-year-old guy, the product of a succession of pagan, religious, and flip-flopping kings uh, with every material and physical and social and financial and sexual advantage at his fingertips. This is a guy who has everything. And, you know, if you think about it for a minute, that's kind of the state of affairs most of us would, would like to find, especially if, if you're on the younger end of the spectrum. You know, this is the sort of state that we're longing for or working hard to get. You know, I know we tend to look at people with money and, and wealth, happiness and fame, and, and think, you know, how could they have any worries if they have all that stuff? With, with all that money, all that power, I'm sure I'd be happy too, Right? Like, and God, don't you want to make me happy? I mean, now some of you are snickering because you're a little bit on the older end of the spectrum, and you've achieved some of those things, and you know it's empty, that it doesn't fully satisfy. You know, we look at celebrity and, and fame, and we say, well, maybe I'd rather have their problems than mine, because at least they have problems, but they're also rich. Like, that's kind of nice. Uh, but the point is, their problems are our problems. You know, like, like us, those with money and fame and wealth and whatever, um, they have the same problems that we do. They think that all those things, money and sex and accomplishment or fame, would, would heal that, you know, that ache, uh, that sometimes overwhelming feeling of the emptiness of it all. I mean, the only difference is they got it and we didn't. A... Uh, a particular celebrity gossip columnist was writing way back in the early 90s. He was a close friend to some of the up-and-coming actors and actresses in New York, names you would recognize. And she observed 
watching their behavior, she says, you know, I pity celebrities. She says, no, I really do. They were once perfectly pleasant human beings. But now their wrath is awful. She says, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then laughs merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. Not a particularly orthodox view of God. Uh, that's not the point. The point is this. She says, you see, my friends, became, my friends wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, it had happened, and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable, she says. One highly successful author was once asked in an interview uh, what he would tell the eight-year-old him if he got the chance. And he said, I would tell the eight-year-old me that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. Now, maybe this describes Josiah. I don't know. 16 and already at the top. But there's a feeling in our world today that, that religion, that turning to God, turning to Christianity, or just turning to something more, something else, is, is a crutch that people use to... Uh, help themselves deal with the plain fact that the world is meaningless and empty, you know, devoid of reason and rationality. Uh, if you read what's out there, the world is, is telling us, okay, look, don't pretend there's some magical God in the sky who's going to make it all better. It's time to man up, grow up, and face the way the world really is. And to that, I think the Christian responds, essentially, I am. I am facing the way the world really is. But I'm taking into account the fact that no matter how hard I try, I still feel like this world must mean something. No matter how many times people tell us, you know, we still all believe that we were meant for something more, that there's some door out there that if we could just get on the other side, that we would escape the, the meaningless that seems to threaten all of our attempts to, to do good and to live well in the world. We feel like if there's, if there's this thing we're searching for. If we could just find it, maybe our, our lives would, would matter. And no matter how hard we try to be rational, we can't seem to convince ourselves that love is just a bunch of hormones and neurons firing around in our brain, or that free will is an illusion, or that the beauty of music and art and nature is just the chemical effects of light particles going in my eye holes. It feels like the world means something more than that. And in the light of that, that pressure of that feeling, there's two options you can take with the apparent meaninglessness of the world, two ways to cope with it. One way is to look at the insensibility of the world and say, well, the meaning of it all is that there is no meaning. And when someone takes that approach, they're saying that there's only one way to make sense of the world, and that's to admit that the world makes no sense. But you have to notice in the very act of declaring the world insensible and irrational, you're making a sensible and rational evaluation of the way the world is. If the world is senseless, then calling the world senseless literally makes no sense. But we can't overcome the drive to derive meaning from the world around us. 
So the other option to take, the, uh, the other person looks at the insensibility of the world and says, well, there must be a layer of meaninglessness over the top, blanketing a deeper meaning to the world. There must be something that, that has scrambled the way the world is, like one of those square tile pictures where you're looking at it and you know there's a picture, but you don't know what it is until you get the tiles in the right place. And different religious viewpoints identify the problem that makes the world insensible in, in different ways. Uh, some locate the problem in us. We need to overcome our desires uh, or release our attachments to the world. Others locate the problem in God. He's angry at us. Still others locate the problem in the world. It's, it's fallen. It's broken in some way. Uh, some, like Christianity, uh, locate the problem in all three. Uh, humanity willingly choosing to disobey God, breaking fellowship with him and plunging the world into chaos. But whatever approach you take, whether you say the world is meaningless, get used to it, or you say the world has a problem, here's how to fix it, uh, in both cases you're making an ultimate claim about the way reality is, about the nature of the world. In both cases you're setting up a religious viewpoint in the broadest sense of the word religion. In both cases we're trying to make sense of the world. Josiah is in a place Many of us long to be and dream about achieving, where we have everything and seemingly nothing to worry about. But for some reason, Josiah didn't stay there. So was religious belief a, a crutch for him? I don't know. Was he hedging his bets, saying, well, maybe if I pay Yahweh some respect, he'll protect me from Assyria? Maybe. That may be the beginning of his story, but it's not the end of it, as we'll read over the next uh, six weeks. But something, something made a 16-year-old king with everything begin to seek the God of David, his father. So what was it? What was it that made Josiah begin to seek after God? What was it that made Josiah say, is there something more? And the text doesn't tell us. 2 Chronicles 34 doesn't give us a hint. 2 Kings 22, which is sort of the parallel story of these same events, uh, doesn't, doesn't really give us a clue as to what drew Josiah toward God. Uh, but there is, at least in this text, a clue about how he drew toward God. And it's, it's in verse 3 when it says, He began to seek the God of David, his father. He began to seek. And seek is a very interesting word. It's a very rational word. It means to search out or to investigate. In other contexts, it's translated to inquire after. As Josiah begins an investigation, a quest, a process of discovery. Who is this God, this God of David? Who is this God, and how do I find out more about him. Josiah begins to seek. And I think there's some significance, too, in, in the fact that it says he began to seek. Because given, given what we're going to read in the rest of his life, he was not like a full-in, all-on convert, day one, everything was great. He, we'll read him go through these progressions of learning more and more about who God is and responding to what he learns. And then, in the end, almost forgetting it all. 
But at least in this passage, we know he began to seek. Which is what is fundamentally true about a, a faith for pagans. A faith for pagans is a faith that seeks. If we're going to find a robust faith in a pagan world, we'll have to find a faith that inquires, a faith that searches, a faith that looks for God. Essentially, that's what this whole sermon is about. As we look at the very beginning of Josiah's life, a faith for pagans is a faith that seeks, a faith that looks, a faith that inquires. So how does that idea uh, apply to us? Well, three, three applications come to mind uh, briefly in the few minutes we have left. First, if a faith for pagans is a faith that seeks, we have to believe that anyone can come to faith in the one true God, of any background or any previous belief. Josiah, as we read his story, we're amazed at the fact that he turned towards God. But sometimes we look at people around us and think, there's no way that, that person ever is going to come to Christ. You know, when we, when we do that, when you, do you realize when you look at someone and say, there's no way that person would ever come to Jesus? Like you're essentially saying, I'm such you know, high-quality spiritual stuff that it was easy for me to come to God. Like, God really didn't have to work all that hard to convince me, but that guy, man, he's going to have to do a lot of work to convince that guy. But, I mean, if, if, you believe, if you believe the gospel that we were all lost, ignorant, broken, and alone, and God had to come find us first, then we sit in amazement and say, God, you found me. It's probably easier to reach that guy I'm worried about. So that, that friend you've been praying for, or the relative you've been trying to share Jesus with, or the coworker you've been talking about Christ to, uh, it doesn't matter what their background is. It doesn't matter how far away from God you think they are. It doesn't matter what their statistical chance of coming to Christ is. If God chooses to reach them, he will. He will. A faith that seeks is a faith that knows that anyone can find God if God shows himself to them. But second, also by way of application, a, a faith for today, a faith for us modern pagans, is a faith that seeks but seeks built on a foundation. What I mean by that is something like what uh, St. Anselm had as his motto in the 11th century, faith-seeking understanding. It was sort of the, the rule for all of his schools. Which doesn't mean that faith will be replaced by understanding, not in, not in this life, but that we begin our searching from a posture of faith, of assuming a few things are true. An active love for God, seeking a deeper understanding of God. It's actually the same kind of relationship as a marriage, if you think about it. Uh, one where you get to know someone well enough to know that you want to commit the rest of your life to them in love, and then built on that foundation of love, you spend the rest of your life getting to know who they are. That's why one of my favorite philosophers describes Christianity as not a series of propositions to be believed, uh, but a proposal of marriage to be accepted or rejected. Because a faith that seeks God is a faith that seeks built on a foundation of something. And finally, it's a faith that, that has an end destination, God himself. It, it's sort of um, style, it's stylish today to say, well, I'm, I'm seeking, I'm on a journey, um, as if the goal is to be, the goal is to be seeking, but the goal isn't just to be seeking, it's also to be finding uh, saying I'm on a spiritual journey uh, is, is true. It's reflective of the way we understand coming to God. But 
saying that the journey is what's most important is kind of missing the point. A few months back, I went up to Chicago for a conference that was supposedly for uh, uh, pastors, leaders, others who are trying to figure out how to help people who are seeking after God. And I thought, this describes the world around us. I should go learn something. And I got there, and I only lasted two sessions before I walked out because it turned out to be a conference congratulating people on not finding God. That the point was to be seeking. And as soon as you said you'd found something, you were no longer welcome. That's not the point. The point of seeking is to find. It's like sitting at a window, looking outside at the scenery, and trying to describe it while looking cross-eyed at the window pane. Like the point of the window is not to be seen. You look through it at what's on the other side of it. The point of seeking is to find God. A faith for pagans is a faith that's built on some basic assumptions about who God is that we've gotten from reliable testimony. It's a faith that seeks, that assumes there's more to learn, that everyone has the chance of finding. And it's a faith that looks to actually find something now, not just keep going in circles seeking. Well, let me, let me add just one last thought. You know, Josiah lived at a time when the one true God had revealed himself mostly through acts of, of power. If you read the Old Testament stories of God's interaction with his people, especially if you read them with cynical eyes, it it looks a lot like Yahweh is no different than any other of the gods worshipped in the ancient Near East. He's a God of power who demands worship from his people before he'll give them what they want. But it's it's only possible to read these stories in that cynical way if you miss the repeated theme over and over again of God's steadfast, everlasting, unfailing love. It's a theme that's going to come up again in Josiah's life and comes up as you read the whole Bible again and again and again. And it's that love of God which undergirds the story of Josiah that sent Jesus for us. Jesus who came and said, I'm here to seek and save the lost. So The point of all of this is not You need to be like Josiah. Be like Josiah, have more faith, uh, seek harder after God. That's not the point. The point is, as much as Josiah knew he needed to seek God, we know now that we have a God who seeks us. We know he seeks us because he left heaven and came to earth. And Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, did not spare himself, but went all the way to the cross and threw it to the other side so that you and I could find him. See, when we read the Old Testament back in light of the New Testament, and we ask ourselves questions like, I wonder what drew Josiah to God? There's really only one answer. God did. Because that's the type of God he is. The one who comes seeking us so that we can in turn seek him. Father, I pray that you would help us to be a people, a people who seek after you, a people whose memoir, if it were to be written, we'd be described as those who spent our lives seeking a deeper deeper understanding and a deeper love for you because you first came and found us. Like Josiah, I do pray that you would help us have a faith for this pagan world, a faith for this pluralistic world, a faith for this world where 
Uh, nothing is assumed to be true. Uh, but we've met you. We know you are true. Give us that faith. In Jesus' name, amen.